Welcome to this podcast from the Oxford Center for Economic and Social History. Uh, I'm Ben Schneider, and our guest today is Dr. Judy Stevenson. Dr. Stevenson is the David Richards Junior Research Fellow in Economic History at Wadham College, Oxford. She completed her PhD in Economic History at the London School of Economics and was the Economic History Society's Tawny Fellow before coming to Oxford. She's the author of various articles about wages, the structure of pay, and the organization of construction work in 17th and 18th century London, and the just published book, Contracts and Pay, Work in London, Construction, 1660 to 1785. She's also a key participant in the ongoing Oxford wage debate, which has featured in the Financial Times and The Economist. So to begin, Judy, I'd like to ask about the purpose of studying historical wages. What questions do economic historians say that wage data can help us to answer? Well, I think the purpose of studying wages is hopefully changing, <laughs> because in the past the purpose of studying wages has been, well, there's been two associated schools of thought that have been interested in wages in economic history. The first is the Marxist school of thought that sees there have, as having been some kind of transformation in the capital-labour relationship during industrialization, or as the Americans would call it, capitalism. Uh, you know, the process of, of emerging capitalism or industrialization, And that wage relations changed in that period. Um, and that that had negative impacts on labour, who had had more of the residual gains from production before wage labour became the norm. So that's a very old idea. It dates from the mid-19th century, but it was influential within economic history until the late 1980s, really, when the cleometricians, or the economic, economic historians, began to use wages as a macroeconomic measure, assuming that wages had always been within the economy, as a macroeconomic measure which could give you a real wage. And in macroeconomic theory, the real wage is a representation of output. Its trend represents growth in productivity. And the average real wage will indicate you know, gross domestic product. It can indicate anything you like if you believe in you know, the model relationships. Uh, so those two schools of thought have held the average wage to be a crucial indicator for different reasons. In the last 25 years, the, you know, the clear metricians won. won the debate. They got to say that the wage had been constant since 1270. You know, the, you know, they, they won the debates about whether wages responded to supply and demand or custom, which had been a big issue uh, throughout the, in economic history throughout the 60s and 70s. So recently, that's what we've used wages for. And that's what the work of Greg Clark and Bob Allen is based on in relation to not just English economic history, but comparative development. All the theories about why England or Northwestern Europe grew and emerged as industrialized productive economies with modern economic growth before the others are related to wages, to high wages, because the wage is seen to be an indicator of development, of advancement. And it probably isn't. <laughs> or builders' wages may not be. Because of that, I think there's, there's other reasons why we should be looking at not just wages, but work bargaining um, overall. I mean, I, I basically, I conclude in my book that builders' wages are a really rubbish proxy for the average wage, <laughs> uh, especially during uh, the 18th century, because... It's very difficult to understand skill in the construction industry. The way that wages are bargained for 
is complex and they probably didn't respond to supply and demand for a very long period of time. So for that reason, we shouldn't treat builders' wages as the average wage. Which, of course, if for a lot of people who've used those data sets, that's very bad news. Right. Um, so, so having yeah. poured cold water on the idea of using construction wages, why, why have economic historians tended to use that as the go-to source? Well, I think the first thing that's not really commonly understood is that most people in the economy before 1800 didn't have a job, as you or I would call it. Uh, they had work, sometimes, or they had some kind of position or, or kind of ongoing relationship that would pay them for some work and for some other things. But because of that, there aren't a lot of wage books hanging around for the period before 1800. So in terms of sources, building accounts look great because they have these things called day rates in them. Oh, right, so that's a builder's day wage. Economic historians thought. So they just strung those together and assumed that was a wage. So it's lack of sources and lack of understanding of what labour markets were and how they behaved before 1800 that leads to that misconception. But also the usage of them, it looks like. They're going to be easy. <laughs> the other thing is they're comparable. There's building accounts everywhere. There's building accounts in India. There's building accounts in Italy. There's building accounts in Madrid. Building accounts in England. And they all look quite similar. If we then move to thinking about, since you're an expert on especially London construction in the 17th and 18th century, what are some of the salient features of the way in which that sector is organized? And how does it compare to other parts of Europe? What's different? What's similar? What may make it uh, good or, as, you're, as you've been suggesting, less good? Uh, so the, yeah, that's no, a really good question. So the London building industry in the 17th century is already very well developed. So in the long run, the history of building in England, there's a lot of very big projects in the medieval period which go badly wrong because they can't finance them well. Uh, you know, building is very capital intensive. Uh, so when they try to build Beaumaris or Pembroke Castle, literally getting all the money together is a problem. And so work starts and stops because they are limited by the amount of you know, coin or species that they can pay out. By the end of the Tudor period, um, and it looks like by, the, by, by Henry VIII, uh, they have worked that out. They've worked out how to form a contract for work that is also a sort of a contract for finance. As in, you agree with the contractor that they will take up some kind of work. You make sure that they have enough to pay their labor who need to be paid immediately, but the contractor also works out how to run a supply chain through credit that can keep work on going even when you know, the gold doesn't come every week. So that seems to be some kind of turning point, which I'm doing a bit more work on at the moment. By the time you get to the building of London after the Great Fire, that's well established. So there isn't a financial constraint on building anymore. And it looks like the early 17th century was a huge period of both house building and church building and you know investment in the built environment generally in London. Firms were quite big and developed. I've, I've argued that they're bigger and more developed than people have thought before, that they're highly capitalized. When we say firms, that needs some shaping or some conditioning because um, what you tend to have is an entrepreneur, what we would call an entrepreneur, a single individual who's the capitalist, who may be financed by other capitalists, who is the nexus of contracts, but that person or individual will form different coordination mechanisms for different kind of contracts. So 
one contractor can run a number of different types of organisation, all of which are quite short term. So very much like modern contracting businesses or modern project-based enterprises with some quite similar financing aspects, obviously with all the liability being on the single holder of <laughs> the contract, um, unless there's partnerships, there's partnerships and things as well. So, sorry, just to break in, what, what, what are you considering to be big as a... There are comparable in size to some of the big contractors today when you look at the okay. size of the market mm. and the size... So if you mm-hmm. take a, a very big firm, which went spectacularly bust last year, Carillion, their markup uh, was in the you know couple of billions. You would have contracts for several billion going through some of the St Paul's contracts. If you were to inflate them up, you know, type in the amount on measuring work, they come out uh, measuring work. They come out a couple of billion quid. So in terms of the amount of work that can be taken on by one contractor or entrepreneur or firm was very large. How does this how does this compare with other with other parts of Europe? So. So that's a really good question. So I think the other thing we need to say about the London market before we just compare is that people have always expected and assumed that guilds, the old trade guilds, were very important in managing the building trades and the craft trades. By the 17th century, that is not the case in London. Uh, The carpenters and the bricklayers and the masons companies are essentially organisations for... They're a bit like the Institute of Directors... There are places to go and hang out and network. You register your apprenticeships there, just so everybody knows you've got one. But they do not regulate wages. They don't regulate output. They don't regulate quality. They're more concerned with managing the income from requests and trusts for widows and orphans. They're not managing output. I believe in other European cities at this time, they are. So it does look like uh, the guilds in Amsterdam or Antwerp in the 17th century were regulating output and labour to a greater degree. There is a definite sense in which English contractors seem to be able to do, to behave and manage their businesses as they like, obviously, you know, within the law of the land, and not have to report or take on the guild as stakeholders, whereas the evidence suggests it may be more kind of regulated in the low countries. Uh, so that's one key difference. The contracting system is quite similar, I think, elsewhere, but the labour relation may not be. So some very interesting work from Luca Marcarelli around uh, the building of the Duomo in Milan, where he shows that you know, the contracting system, which is very similar to the British con- to the English contracting system, actually suffers from a big skill shortage. So the contractors are using their supply chain to fund extra payments to labour, beyond what the institution will pay out for labour services so that they can keep specialists on site. But they're still constrained by the same you know, billing and accounting formats. There's a number of very big, very similar projects from the early 18th century around Europe, you know, in terms of cathedral building, etc. And there's a network of some of us, Ernesto Lopez Losa at um, Bilbao, Catherine Gary in Sweden, Luca Macrelli in Italy, and perhaps Vienna as well, where we're going to try and compare some of these and look whether you know, look really at, at how the money was made and the regulation and the labour law and really do a proper comparison. But a proper comparison hasn't really been carried out. Well, this this leads long winded way of saying. Sorry. <laughs> this leads neatly into a discussion of well the Oxford wage debate. So your most read and cited paper 
uh, is in the Economic History Review that critiques the wage data used by Robert Allen for his high wage yeah. economy um, thesis. So f- first of all, where, what was the origin of this paper? Where did the, where did the idea come from? Um, so I said that I wanted to study wages for my PhD and I had spent about four months in the archives not getting anywhere at this point and it was that upgrade time. <laughs> uh, so uh, Patrick Wallace, who was my supervisor at the time, said, well, you're going to have to come up with something. Well, you could always resubmit, he said. <laughs> uh, so he said, just go back to the original work. You know, go back to what Gilboy looked at and see if you can see anything. So I went to Westminster Abbey, which is the first of her um, sources, and opened the stuff that she had looked at. And I immediately just thought it was blindingly obvious. These things aren't wage books. These are bills. And look, they're charging out 30 people at exactly the same rate. When was the last time you saw any bunch of 30 people paid exactly the same? This is obviously a subcontracting system and these are charge out rates. So I went back to Patrick and said, well, obviously, they're all charge out rates. Everybody knows that, right? He went, no, <laughs> good luck with that. So that was the that was the origin of that paper is um, you know essentially he said you, you're not going to be able to do the work he's absolutely right and I was very lucky to have somebody so supportive and uh, you know understanding the issues he said you can't do the work on wages that you want to do unless you get that point across about builders' wages because everybody believes that this thirty pence a day thing really is an average skilled wage so until you explain how it really worked you're not going to be able to do the work you want. So that's the origin of that paper. Okay, so could you then explain how, how, when you're talking about charge-out rates? So yeah. for maybe people who aren't in the study of wages, haven't been involved in this debate, or non-economic historians who yeah. may be listening. Can you explain a little bit about how that works? Contractors, or entrepreneurs, contracted to do large works. So, you know, build the side of a cathedral, carve a ceiling, a rod of brickwork, insert the joinery, whatever the contract was. To do that, they usually contracted by the measure. So they said they charged a fixed rate per yard, per rod, per foot of finished product. And they got labour then to do the work for them. On day rates, you know, they thought, well, it'll take my guys this much time. So if I do that by the yard, there's so many yards, my contract's worth so many thousands of pounds, my labour costs are this. And they would price everything so that they had a profit margin and an operating margin, and that's how they made money, and they did make money. But then there were situations where the client and the contractor would not be able to agree an amount per yard because the work was risky, or the weather was bad, or it was just a bit of an unknown. And at that point then, the client would say, well, we'll pay you by the day. And so they would pay a day rate for men on site doing stuff. Now, there aren't very many days day rates paid. Uh, But at that point, the client would then pay for stuff by the day. So this figure, which at the moment for a London bricklayer, 350 to 400 quid a day, would include the cost of the bricklayer, the cost of the bricklayer's materials and small materials, their tools, their carriers, probably their van today in 1712 obviously it's not the van but it's of course getting them on site dressed appropriately but there's also the contractor's margin that is in that 30 pence a day the bricklayer himself received about 24 pence of that so contractors obviously you know in organizing labor on site take a margin or a markup on the wages that they pay and that's how they got paid so it's basically a charge out rate and that's common in any project-based enterprise 
you hire in short-term labour at one rate and you charge it on at another with your overhead. And it had just been that these figures had been interpreted as what the men received. But if you look at the records they're taken from, they're not from what the men received. So I was very lucky to find one example, yay, of what the men received. And luckily it was lower. Yay, just like I predicted. <laughs> By about as much as I had predicted as well, nearly so. And that's this lovely set of two day books from William Kempster's team at St. Paul's, 1700 to 1709, where he's kept just two of the books logging. Who was working for him? There's the odd reference to what they were doing, laying steps, putting the ironwork, etc., and all the day rates. And what you see is that real masons, you know, paid directly by a contractor, earn very varied rates. There's some men on very high rates. You know, the really skilled people are on more than 36 pence a day. And, you know, some also very experienced people paid about 20 pence a day. It, that looks like real work. You know, people paid lots of different rates for different things. They come and go. Those are real received wages. Right, so you get into this in, I think, a lot of really good detail in, in the book. So could you explain what are, what are some of the implications for this? So, so the high wage economy thesis suggests that relative factor costs are important. Uh, in Britain, Allen argues wages were high relative to the cost of capital and energy, and that this ratio was higher than it was in continental Europe and in other parts of the world. In a sense, it's obvious then what the implications of well, the observing different the wages would be. the implications for Bob, because Bob used builders' wages assuming they were the average wage and assuming that they were an indication of the wage across the labour market. You know, the relationship between London builders and spinners in Lancashire was always a bit tenuous in my... <laughs> it's only if you believe that builders are the average wage that you could have made that argument. And all I was showing is that if you do believe builders are the average wage, Bob, I have bad news because builders got 20% less. And that is enough to make England not look high and actually to make the nominal wage stagnation across the 18th century in English builders' charge-out rates. Look, not only did builders not earn as much as you think, they didn't gain anything. They lost out through this period of innovation and growth, which was meant to have incentivised capital to use mechanisation rather than labour. So, the, you know, the thesis is that the high cost of labour prohibited or encouraged capitalists to mechanise. But, I mean, all the evidence is that labour was cheap and abundant and could be hired by the day, by the piece, by the any which way you wanted. The induced innovation labour price theory that Bob advances, it cannot be supported by the builder's wages. So then that doesn't do mean it. that British wages Sorry. were low. It means that you can't use builders to make the argument that Bob's mm -hmm. made. <laughs> so what do you see as the main challenges in constructing historical indices of wages? So lack of sources is <laughs> the first. So something I think we're both very yeah. familiar with. I think the main challenge then is, is thinking about the unit cost of labour in a modern way because the unit cost of labour may well work differently. I hate to kind of go back to the Hobbesbourne, the Marxist, you know, there was some great transformation. I don't think there was some great transformation, but there isn't the straightforward relationship between time and pay in the 17th and 18th century that there becomes after the early 19th century. Builders are paid by the day in the 18th century, but nobody else is. Anybody in manufacturing is paid by the piece. Dealers are paid on commission. Usually the commission is paid in kind, and you know, and then you, you sell those on, you know what I mean? It's only by selling them and converting those things that you actually get paid at all. Most people are paid on commission. And then service workers tend to be paid for their time, and then they've got an, an opportunity to get more 
you know, by trading themselves or dealing themselves. So they tend to be paid sort of a secure, you know, five pounds a year just to be, you know, in, to have a relationship, a long-term relationship where they provide a certain service, but then they look for gratuities and other types of, of ways. Well, they also take commission from others who want to get into that institution and all that kind of stuff. So wage formation is really complicated <laughs> in the early modern period. It actually means that wage bargaining is more complex, but possibly better because you're not bargaining for a wage you're bargaining for different components of the wage. In today's world, there's a lot of debate about, well, wages are down, but you're getting all these perks. You're getting gym membership, fruit and coffee, childcare vouchers, you know, and a whole pile of stuff that doesn't pay the rent and put food on the table. There's a long history of varied wage formation, and it does look like wage formation is more interesting and possibly more effective in the 17th and 18th century, but I can't say that yet. Still work I'm doing. I think that also leads on neatly to the Unreal Wages book with John Hatch. Yes, that well, is that, that is, no, that's, 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 that's just at it. Unreal Wages, then. What, this is clearly a provocative title. It's provocative you, title. Well, John and I, what you guys, John uh, being the, the expert in all things work and industry-wise in England from, you know, the medieval period, and he wrote a very, now a very famous article, 2011, which is, you know, took down the golden age of the 15th century, essentially making the case that, you know, day wages that people like Greg Clark and Bob Allen had perceived as being a day's income for your average agricultural labourer, they were earned on four days in the year during the harvest, you know, and they no way, even 200 days of those, relate to an actual income of a labourer because people just didn't earn that amount of money for that many days of the year. These were special contracts. So John and I got together and went, actually, the wage data for pretty much all centuries smells really bad. <laughs> Why don't we just collect together all the really good empirical stuff that says it's really bad? And actually, we wanted to reprint many more. Uh, we wanted to reprint work by Donald Woodward from the 80s and 90s and by Alfred Hassel-Smith on the Norfolk labourers from the mid-80s. Copyright and things these days are a complete nightmare, so we couldn't reprint as much as we could. But we were able to get people who had published on this topic, Craig Muldrew, Joyce Burnett. There's a great essay in there from Patrick O'Brien and Kent Denk about Chinese wages, which means all this work that Bob and Devin Mann, some people have done on Chinese wages, just cut down because it's not, these are not representative wages. So yeah, we do, it's basically a, a book that says everything you know about wages is wrong. So it's a bit cheeky. <laughs> so I've got two essays in there, one about laborers, one about craftsmen. John has written some new work about just the interpretation of wages within British rural and regional industry throughout the ages. There's some lovely work on seasonality from Joyce Burnett and work from Craig. Luca Moccarelli's Italian wages. So yeah, it's a nice collection. Bit cheeky. Right. Everything you know about wages is wrong could also have been a good provocative title, but maybe less, maybe yeah. a little bit less academic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and you, you've just noted here some problems of, we have problems of representativeness. We talked before about yeah. who's doing this actual work, how skilled are they? There's another problem which, which you've just noted, which is working time. You presented the paper at our seminar here earlier this year about uh, availability of, of work for, for workers in, in London construction. Could you just go through briefly the, the frame that people have had, maybe up until the last 10-ish years? Because I think John Hatcher wrote an article on this about 2011? Yeah, 2011. Um, yeah. And then uh, but there's been a lot more work has followed on from that. But how much were people working and... And maybe also linking back to um, when you were mentioning before about how guilds were not particularly important in London. How, how were laborers recruited then? 
Yeah. Okay, so the, the standard macroeconomic model of the real wage assumes 250 days work per year for the average craftsman or the average labourer. And in that paper, you know, looking for work or looking for workers, and in my current work, I'm showing that that's not possible for the average worker in construction for three reasons. The first reason is seasonality which used to be a really big part of the historiography of work in the early modern world, but everyone's forgotten. (laughs) Um, But there is less work in the first three months of our year or Candlemas quarter, January, February, March. There is just less work uh, because rivers are frozen, roads are impassable, supply chains stop. And in the expectation of those problems or anticipation of those problems, people just don't contract for work in, in that quarter because they think it's going to be problematic and so margins are going to be lower. So there are fewer days worked per month, January, February, March. And then I've worked with Patrick Wallace on inputting a huge data set, 22,000 observations of labourers at St Paul's, uh, 1675 to 1711. And I have the lovely data set from the William Kempster books. And both of those sources show that nobody works year round. Very few people, like less than 5% of either workforce, are regularly employed. Most people appear for a few weeks and then go somewhere else. And then they might appear again or they might not. Seasonality is one issue. The other issue is people are taking breaks from work because they're not matching. Now, not matching in the construction industry is typical because construction work is stage dependent. I don't need a glazer until I've got holes in walls to put windows into. (laughs) So there's a stage dependency thing. Contractors, if they're running lots of projects simultaneously, should be able to, it would be more useful to have regular band men because then your transaction costs of searching and bargaining for new workers would be lower. But it doesn't seem to work quite that way. You've just got a very high turnover, even in types of skills that are permanently required on site. That suggests that people are moving around and searching for new work. And that's costly. We know that. That's what all of modern or contemporary labour economics is based on, is search costs. And nobody's done enough on search costs in the early modern world. But since most people don't have jobs, they must have been quite high. (laughs) So... If you take that sort of six weeks of the year are not available to you because of seasonality, then you've got search costs in looking for work. Then the third issue is people who have longer relationships with employers tend to get more of those days per week, more of those days per month when there is work. Tenure or your, relation, your working relationship with an employer is really important, but those bonds seem quite weak. Very few people have regular employment relationships. So those three factors mean that there's no way the average for everybody could be 250. My reviewers think that 180 was a bit too far out there. <laughs> so I'm happy to settle at around 200. But it's, it's important to say that not everybody could have been working 250 days of work. Not even the average person could have been working 250 days a year at the sort of rates that we've been looking at. If you think the real wage, based on builders, has a significance for output then there's more bad news because not only was the actual day rate lower, but the number of days that people were working was lower as well. And so output would have been lower if you want to calculate it that way. Thanks to Steve Broadbury and co-authors <laughs> and Bruce Campbell and Balvin Lewin and that team, we don't need to use the real wage to look at output anymore. And uh, the important work that Steve's doing on capital stock with Sandra Deplate and you know on investment is, is really the next critical part of understanding how the economy actually worked. 
we've been over-reliant on this wage indicator. But obviously it also has implications for what you touched on before when you were talking about labor shares and and sort of a Marxist framing. It has implications for living standards debate. Yes. So people aren't working 250 days a year. What are they living off? Exactly. Exactly. So I think that the one thing to bear in mind is that households are a different shape. There's some fabulous work done by the Cambridge Group and others about 10 years ago, which has been completely ignored by economic historians for London, the People in Place um, project which looked at London communities and London households based on the marriage duty assessments of 1695. And it showed that the typical London household was not a man and wife and 2.4 children or three children. It was a man, a wife, both of whom were contracting separately in different businesses or who were working with each other on, on their sort of family trade, a couple of lodgers, an apprentice, a servant, and the kids were probably out with their a sister or aunt or whatever in the nice farm in Sussex or you know in somewhere a bit greener and nice there were a no- very small number of small children children were sent out and they would come back in particularly in, in middle or lower middle class families they would come back in then to apprentice or work only you know as they got to their early teens so the household structure looks completely different in terms of mouths to feed and dependence And I think we we probably haven't done enough work on that. Even if you take the London wage down by 50%, assuming that, you know, the number of days worked are lower and the day rate is lower, Londoners still look quite well off. You know, there's there's a a basket of goods that's decent for every single head. But uh, you don't know enough about the prices and rents and things as well. You know, so I, nobody's saying that people starved, even though there's a lot of contemporary evidence, you know, going back to Dorothy George, you know, digging through 18th century newspapers and contemporary accounts of, you know, starvation, living on the streets, general petty poverty. I mean, that is the historiography of London in the 18th century. So chances are all those figures are too generous. Yeah, I mean, as, as I think Eric Schneider has said before, um, you know, OK, we, we, if we lower these wages or we lower people's income over the course of a year, we know from demography that these people weren't all sort of keeling over. So yeah. there has to be some, exactly. some explanation yeah. for that. So a lot of what you've explained here in terms of the way that the, um, the labor market functions, the ways in which people are paid, seems very different from the way in which most people today are paid. But do you see parallels between some of these structures or payment systems and, uh, and the world around us today? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the 18th century is very much... A gig economy. It's a gig economy for most workers mm. and for most workers around the median income. Only the well-to-do have permanent contracts or you know have some kind of ongoing relationship. Yeah, the gig economy is recreating the conditions of the 18th century. I mean, I think that's... I've provided Sarah O'Connor with as much material as I could possibly <laughs> to make that argument two years ago. Um, in, in the, the FT. Times, Yeah. yeah. Um, but what's interesting is that the that new technology is enabling employers to have information that they could never have had before today, really. Um, and that is because tracking and technological platforms are allowing employers to track the effort, you know, and the activities that workers are carried out. And, you know, in labor economics, this is all the thing. You can't observe effort. You know, that's the classic Elkin and Demet's argument is you can't observe effort. So labor markets are really markets for information, not for for skill or output of productivity. But now labour markets have much better information if you can track people doing the work. So that's a big inequity between if the traditional relationship is 
Capital says, I'll pay you. Labour says, I'll do. Eventually, then they kind of, they lock each other out until they get to a kind of deal. And I think the classic case of this, you know, the classic history of that kind of bargaining is Michael Huberman's work on um, cotton spinners in Bolton and Alderman Lancashire Mm -hmm. in the 1820s. Um, You know, that's the kind of the gold standard for that kind of stuff. These days, capital would have won. The workers would never have got to strike because... Capital would have seen the turn in the behaviour before they were able to collect the data. That's something to worry about. <laughs> right. So if we're all on task rabbit, it's a bit different from. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and I think yeah, the, the uh, generally, the costs of employment are considered by capital to be very high. Employers, you know, and shareholders, and corporations generally want to free themselves from what they think see as the costs of employment. They don't see the benefits of having a workforce, they see the costs. And that's a very 18th century point of view. And, you know, Sidney Pollard wrote about this in the 60s. You know, essentially, what you don't want to do is have an organisation. It costs money. You, know, you just want a series of contracts. And that's the way that corporate life and work life are moving. And I think it's important to bear in mind that the outcome wasn't great. The story of the 18th century is not the story of working people getting better off, no matter what, you know, Deirdre McCluskey argues very strongly that the process of industrialised capitalism makes people better off because it is associated with, eventually after the 1860s, a rise in the real wage, and then public investment around healthcare and infrastructure, and things that basically improve the quality of life for everybody, and the mass production of standardised goods, which, including foods and basic needs, uh, which makes everybody better off. But for the 18th century, the process is increasing grinding poverty. You have to have quite Definitely. a long time horizon. You have to have a very long in time horizon to 1750, think it's better. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. The gig economy is not beneficial. Maybe then to just to conclude and pivot back to history, I guess what do you see as the directions for the study of wages and work and, and bargaining, especially in the 17th and 18th yeah. and 19th century? Um, because as we've said, there has been a proliferation of wage studies, probably since two, Bob's 2001 article, or certainly since yeah. the 2009 book. Okay, so actually, I think there's, there's, there's three interesting things. The first interesting thing is, everybody agrees that you know, labour markets are in crisis, even though unemployment's at an all-time low. You know, there's a general, oh my God, you know, labour uh, regulation, wages, the market isn't working. The worry that people have is that, or the worry I have is that we don't know how to bargain. Everybody's forgotten how to wage bargain, but because from 1909 to 1982, we didn't have to, the unions did it. You know, the Trade Boards Act and the unions uh, enabled completely collectivized wage bargaining. And through that period, the real wage and productivity and growth mirror each other pretty well. Um, And that's fallen away since the early since the late 80s, early 90s, since the unions have been unpicked. So Labour doesn't have any bargaining power. It's not even just about power. We don't know how to bargain. And so I think we have a lot to learn from looking at the changes in the bargaining systems of the past because, you know, capital and Labour face this problem perennially. <laughs> so they'll have done some work on it before. So I'm particularly interested now in looking at the service sector because the service sector is the biggest part of our economy today, but increasingly we know that it's the biggest part of growth in the late 17th and early 18th century. Nick Crafts has done this work on, you know, looking at an econometric analysis of the broad three, 
output figures. And it shows that growth, you know, modern economic growth starts actually much earlier in England, about 1665, 1670, 16, yeah, and then is kind of low and moderate throughout the 18th century. But that growth at the end of the 17th century is completely services driven. There's no manufacturing or industrial boom. The industrial boom doesn't happen until after the Napoleonic Wars, till the early 1820s. So that means that the 18th century is not an industrial revolution at all. It's a service economy finding its feet. <laughs> so that, once you begin to conceive of it in that way, then what's happening in services and the kinds of sectors of the economy that are responding to the services innovation and services growth is exciting. And in services, you do, do see lots of different types of wage formation and bargain. You know, I can pay you on commission, I can give you a fixed contract, I can pay for your time. Oh, let's not do that. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, and I think we might be able to find some interesting uh, models of doing that, that that can give us some guidelines or, you know, interesting ideas for how bargaining works for current policy, but that can also inform our understanding of how welfare and living standards really did change in the early modern period. Because if there wasn't industrialised growth, then maybe we go back to looking at the changes and drivers in the old chestnut, which everybody loves and everybody forgets about, urbanisation, you know, demography and geography, you know, services are urban um, phenomena actually not not always there's a huge amount of growth in some of the food processing services that Jane Whittle and stuff have been looking at in the southwest and in the sort of agricultural economy as well dealing food processing changes there as well so yeah I think services are the way I'm, I'm with Steve Broadbury on this I think services are the thing we should be looking at going forward and how services how wages in the services sector move should be the kind of vanguard and the interesting side of things. I say that naturally because I'm working on it. I'm hoping other people are too. <laughs> right. But yeah, exactly. that's what I think is interesting. Right. Yeah. Thank you. This is a great survey of both why economic historians have studied wages, what can be challenging about it, and contemporary implications and, and future directions of research. So thank you very much for your time, Judy. Thank you, Beth. Great fun.